0: The following message is from the 2012 IBCD Summer Institute, Changed by Grace. You might be wondering what in the world is a lawyer doing at a biblical counseling conference. Lawyers' reputations for lawyers have gone down in recent years. We hear lots of jokes about them. I was on a cruise recently with a group of Christian lawyers with the Alliance Defense Fund, and one of them said, I hope we don't end up in the water where the sharks might eat us. And I said, now, don't worry. The sharks will eat the other passengers, but they won't eat us. Professional courtesy. <laughs> and you might remember Wayne Mack. Um, some of you, he has written a lot of good books on biblical counseling and has spoken here before. His wife comes with a, from a family with a lot of lawyers. And someone asked her one time, how in the world did you end up getting married to a pastor when you're related to all these lawyers? And she said, well, somebody has to keep all those lawyers straight. <laughs> so today it's the other way around. We have a lawyer to keep all those pastors and biblical counselors straight because there are a lot of challenges in the uh, in America today to Christian believers. And you're going to find some of those people in your churches and in your counseling rooms. They might not even be in your counseling rooms. They may just be people you hear about in your churches who need Ministry, Biblical Counseling, Wise Counsel, and other kinds of help. Uh, A little bit about me. I went to Westminster Seminary in Escondido for about six years to get a two-year degree. It was a wonderful, blessed experience. And I graduated from seminary in May of 98, and I immediately enrolled in law school. And I've been glad that I did it in that order. I went to seminary and learned about God's law, and then went to law school and learned about man's law. Um, I'm also a writer. Um, I ended up going to Westminster because I was a psychologized counselee for the first 40 years of my life. I wandered in the wilderness and finally realized there's something wrong with this picture. I started reading J. Adams' books and applying the Bible to my own life. And I found out about IBCD, which was then CCEF West. And I started to take some of their classes on biblical counseling. And one of the assignments in one of the classes was to write a critique of a Christian psychologist and a critique of a secular psychologist. I did that, and it so much helped me sharpen my own thinking that I got on a roll and kept doing it. And meanwhile, I started hanging around the seminary because some of the classes that IBCD, then CCEF, was giving were at the seminary. And some of the books that I was reading to critique would, there would be authors that were Christian psychologists, but they also had degrees in theology, so they'd use a Greek word or a Hebrew word to support some some concept that was not biblical, even in English. Mm-hmm. So I decided I needed to enroll in seminary so that I could do a better job of critiquing some of those books. Well, anyway, in the process of doing that, I got a letter from someone. This inspired me to go to law school. I want to read this. This is from a letter I received in about 1995 from a prisoner in Wisconsin. And this brings together both the law and the seminary training that I have. Here's what this man says. I am a newly born again Christian. I am also a prisoner. In a few short months, I will be faced with having to make a decision of either to submit to a secular treatment program or possibly spend the rest of my life in prison. Needless to say, it's a difficult decision to make. I love my Heavenly Father, and I want to do what is pleasing to Him, not man. And if I need to make a decision that may cost me my freedom, well, so be it. After all, Jesus went to the cross and sacrificed His life for me. I have done some legal research and contained in the Wisconsin State Constitution is a section that states that the right of every person to worship Almighty God according to the dictates of conscience shall never be infringed upon, nor shall any control of or interference with the rights of conscience be permitted. This to me very clearly states that the practice in this state of forced treatment is in violation of their own constitution. I did get in touch with a pastor of a church who does counsel from the word of God, and upon my release he agreed to accept me into his church and to counsel me. I wrote my parole agent and shared with him the new life I have found in Christ and also the arrangements that I've made for counseling. However, my parole agent wrote back and told me that I needed more than Christ and the Bible to succeed in life, and if I refuse what he decides is appropriate treatment for me I will suffer the consequences, meaning revocation of my parole. Upon my release, I plan to seek legal representation, and if my parole agent continues to force secular treatment, perhaps I can do something for my brothers and sisters in prison who are faced with the same circumstances. That letter just blew me away. I mean, how many of us would spend the rest of our lives in prison rather than concede to go through some secular counseling program? So that got me going. I had wanted to be a lawyer a long time ago, and so when I got out of seminary, I enrolled in law school. And I became very interested in constitutional law and the First Amendment in particular, free exercise of religion and the Establishment Clause. And that has become increasingly important even in the last few years. I graduated from law school about ten years ago, and what's happened in the last 10 years is frightening. What's happened in the last two or three years is even worse. And what we're facing is, is just really critical. And a couple of Bible verses came to mind as I was planning this. John 16:33. 33. Jesus said, you will have tribulation. Your counselees will have tribu- tribulation. And some of those tribulations and trials are literally in the courts. As First Peter says, fiery trials are no surprise, and there are a lot of them right now. Um, I've done prior workshops here and at NANC and I have focused on getting informed consent from your counselees so that they understand that what you're doing is biblical, religious counseling and not secular psychotherapy. And they agree to, if there's a dispute, to resolve it internally within the church and in connection with those earlier workshops, I had a consent form, and I brought that today. I'm not going to go over all that material, but you are welcome to one of these forms if you're in a counseling center and are interested. I will have these up here, and you're welcome to take one today on your way out. Um, There's a book that I have written called Death of a Christian Nation. It's in the bookstore there, and it's It's a little bit dated in a sense. It was published in 2010, and what I tried to do was summarize all of the legal challenges facing Christians in America today, and I felt at that time like I should be writing a 10-volume set in a three-ring binder so that pages could be added. Well, a lot has happened even in those last couple of years, and I probably don't need to tell some of you some of the things that are in the news with the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and the move towards same-sex marriage, the abortion agenda, the atheists that file lawsuits to remove religion from the public square. There are all kinds of trials. And sooner or later, you're probably going to run into somebody somewhere that's undergoing some kind of a trial It may or may not even be in the courtroom. Um, I've divided my talk today into a, a couple of different sections. The first section, I have a little bit of good news from the United States Supreme Court this past year. And it's a case that involves the freedom of churches and other religious organizations to select those who will carry out a spiritual mission. So we have a really good decision on religious freedom there, I want to tell you about.
1: And that's important
0: for the way you structure your counseling centers and your relationship with your counselors and your governing documents. Um, Then the second part, I want to talk about some of the challenges that some of your counselees might be facing and how you can help them. And they may not even show up in the counseling room. They may be godly people who own a business and face a challenge and you just know about them, but they need godly counsel and they need various kinds of ministry from the body of Christ. Okay, first of all, and this is on your outline, there's a case in the Supreme Court called Hosanna Tabor Lutheran versus Perrick. Um, Perrick, that's Cheryl Perrick, was a teacher in a Lutheran school, a church-operated school. It was like an elementary school. And she was a, quote-unquote, called teacher. She had to go through training in theology, and her duties included leading religious worship and devotions and teaching Bible and also teaching your typical math and uh, science, social studies, and reading other kinds of subjects besides religion. So, um, anyway, Cheryl Perrick was her name. She had narcolepsy, developed that while she was teaching there, and so she had to be off on disability. And the school said, we'll be happy to make a plan for you to return when you're ready and well. So they had a place for her. But what happened is Cheryl Perrick and her doctor decided that she was ready to be come back to work. So she showed up and demanded to be reinstated. And the school was concerned. They were concerned about safety, for one thing. She had nar- narcolepsy and had charge of these elementary school students. And if a teacher in a classroom falls asleep, uh, that could be a real concern. That could subject the school to some liability. So they were concerned about that. But mostly they were concerned about her attitude. And what happened, ultimately, they did not work it out. Um, and she, she threatened to file a lawsuit and actually did file a lawsuit, found a lawyer, sued the school under the Americans for Disabilities Act. And she alleged that she was terminated. The, the congregation actually rescinded her call. The congregation of the church had hired her. This was, this was a church-operated school. But they rescinded her call, and it wasn't because she was disabled. It was because of her attitude, her threat to sue the church in violation of 1 Corinthians 6. We need to resolve disputes between believers within the body of Christ and not in front of a secular court. So that was the reason for terminating her. The the Supreme Court unanimously, unanimously sided with the school and affirmed the freedom of churches and other religious organizations to select their ministerial employees. Now, ministerial employee is a broader concept than just the pastor who preaches, although the pastor who preaches from the pulpit is definitely a ministerial employee, and that was not at issue. This teacher actually was commissioned as a minister she was not ordained to preach from the pulpit but she was commissioned and she actually was able to receive a parsonage allowance which is only available for ordained licensed or commissioned ministers so one of the things and this is what when i wrote a brief in this case i focused in on that area and i said well wait a minute this teacher has accepted this commission and she's accepted a minister's housing allowance, and now she's filing a lawsuit and saying, wait a minute, I'm not a ministerial ministerial employee. The courts, because of the First Amendment free exercise of religion clause, they don't want to get involved in telling a church who they have to hire as a minister or who they have to retain as a minister. They pretty much say, whoops, no matter how unjust this situation might seem to be, we don't want any part of it. Well, here... A ministerial employee is, as I said, it's a broader concept than simply the pastor who preaches. It's the employees who are essential to the spiritual mission of the church or other organization. So ministers of music have been included, even though they may not be ordained pastors. But music is so central to the worship service that courts have taken a hands-off approach on that, too. Well, here, you've got a school that is operated by a church, and who could be more central to the religious ministry or, and purpose of a church-operated school than the teachers? I mean, they're just as essential to the school's mission, spiritual mission, as a pastor would be to the church's mission. So, that was a very good decision, and it's Nice to start off with some good news from the courts because a lot of the news these days is not good, including the decision we had yesterday on the health care law, which is another subject for another day. But the good news here is this supports the freedom of a church or other religious counseling center to select the counselors who will carry out its religious mission according to its religious doctrine. So that is a very good precedent, legal precedent for you in operating your counseling centers. It's still important, however, to have good doc- governing documents and policies and to highlight the fact that you are a biblical counseling center, that you have a religious purpose. still important to exercise care when you select those counselors who are going to carry out your mission Train your counselors, and all of you are here getting training, which is a good thing, and there's also NANG, so that's important. Supervision is important, so that your counselors are accountable for what they're doing. A good internal biblical dispute resolution policy is also good. Now, in this case, this Lutheran school had such a policy, and I think they did not raise that properly at in the lower courts or if they might have prevailed uh, a little faster than they did but I'm glad they set this good precedent and of course it's important to follow your own government governing documents and policies distinguish your counselors from their secular counterparts so and that's all that's something that I've covered here too in your um agreements that you have with your counselees to make sure they know that what you're doing is biblical counseling, religious counseling, you're not doing psychotherapy. If you start holding yourself out as a psychotherapist in some manner, you could be held to the same legal standard. And that's real important right now in California. And probably a lot of you are from California. California has a proposed new law that I hope and pray they don't pass, but it's passed the Senate, I believe, in California, that prohibits or severely restricts what's called reparative therapy, where someone goes to a counselor and says, I have these unwanted same-sex attractions. I want to overcome this. I know what the Bible says, and I want to follow the scripture. Well, state-licensed counselors are going to have a real tough time. At the very least, if this bill passes, they're going to have to make all sorts of disclosures about the harm that that kind of therapy allegedly can do. I've read the bill, and as I read it, it should not apply to pastors, and it shouldn't apply to biblical counselors who don't hold state licenses. I mean, if you're name certified or something like that, you're not state licensed. But that's an increasing trend, and it's frightening, so it's more important than ever to distinguish yourselves from these secular counterparts. And in addition to that, there are two cases that I want to tell you about that are winding their way through the federal courts, one in Michigan and one in Georgia. Each They're very similar. Each case involves a Christian in a graduate counseling program in a public university. So it's secular. It's not a Christian college where they wouldn't have this problem. But in each case, this Christian student was expelled for refusing to change her religious views on homosexuality. I mean, that's basically what it boils down to. Uh, The one in Michigan a girl named Julia Ward, and Alliance Defense Fund is the Christian organization that handled that case, and I wrote a supporting brief and was very happy to be able to use my seminary training, but let me tell you about that case. Julia Ward was a 4.0 student, and the last semester before graduation, she had to go through a counseling practicum where they would actually counsel real clients. And similar to what I know Nank has a program where you sit in on counseling sessions and then you actually counsel people before you're certified. Well, that's what they had to do. Well, she was assigned a homosexual man to counsel. And she said, you know, I could counsel him on all kinds of other things, but he specifically wanted counseling for a same-sex relationship. And she said, because of my Christian religious viewpoint, I cannot affirm that relationship can I refer him to someone else? Now, the school had taught her that if there was a values conflict, the right thing to do was to refer. They did refer the student, to, or not the student, the counselor to another, another student counselor. But then they called her in for a disciplinary review and accused her of unethical conduct and raked her over the coals about her theology and ultimately expelled her from the program because she refused to affirm same-sex relationships. Well, that went up to the Sixth, Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. That's kind of a mouthful there, and that's where I wrote a brief, and the thrust of my brief was, counseling is not a religiously neutral activity. You cannot counsel somebody without a value system. You have got presuppositions. What kind of changes are you going to make? I mean, you've got to have some kind of values. You can, and you can't just check your values at the door. Otherwise, what good, <clears throat> what's the use of counseling? So what they want Christians to do is check their values at the door. There's another case um, that's at the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Actually, it went there, and then I think it's back down at the trial court level. That came out of Georgia. Very similar situation with a counseling student, a good student, who was told that she needed to go through a remediation program so that she could be more sensitive to these other lifestyles. And I think they even wanted her to go to a gay pride event or something like that. And their their problem with her is that she said, if I had somebody come in who was homosexual, I would advise them that that conduct is immoral and I would want to help them change, which is what... biblical counselor would do well the 11th circuit ruled against her so that's these two cases are still in process the one on julia ward and the sixth circuit they said the case could go forward it was a favorable decision saying that you know it kind of looks like the school may have expelled her because of her religious beliefs and that violates the first amendment so that case is going on. So these, both of these cases, they're still ongoing. And I will be watching to see what happens with them. But it's an increasing issue. One of the things about these two cases, though, they really highlight the distinction between secular psychotherapy and biblical truth. And they highlight the importance of informing your counselees so that when they come in to see you, they know what they're getting into. And actually, one of the things I argued with this case is that it's best to match a counselor and a counselee who share the same worldview, the same value system. And one of my attorney friends said, you know, if my wife and I were going to go for counseling, we would not want to go to some radical feminist who thinks marriage is an outmoded institution that ought to be abolished. I mean, you want to go to someone who shares your worldview and values or you're not going to get anywhere with your counseling. But also your role as a biblical counselor is increasingly important. As Christians are pushed out of secular programs, well, here's IBCD, NANC, organizations like that to help fill the gap. Okay. Now, the second part of this is this, there's a new type of counselee on the horizon, basically. You may get people in your counseling office or in your churches who are faced with situations where it's going to be very costly for them to follow Christ in their workplaces and in their universities. Some of the challenges, and this is on your outline, there's hostility to the Christian faith in public schools and universities. A lot of Christians have taken their children out and are homeschooling or sending them to private school if they can afford it. There's hostility to the Christian faith in the workplace. There are anti-discrimination statutes that increasingly cover things like sexual orientation. And those are applied to Christians who own private businesses. And that's frightening. Marriage is under attack. I don't think I need to tell any of you here, especially in California with the situation with Prop 8, that... uh, uh, district court judge said there was no rational basis for it, and it was unconstitutional. And the Ninth Circuit, which is very liberal, has gone along with that. So that's under attack. Sometimes there are even physical threats against people that support God's definition of marriage. Um, a couple of years ago, there was a case that came out of the state of Washington. Washington passed some legislation that they called everything but marriage, civil unions. The people were disturbed and they signed petitions to get up a referendum and let the people actually vote on whether they wanted to keep that law or not. Under Washington state law, those petitions were public documents, so anybody could go and ask for a copy of those documents. And a couple of radical homosexual organizations wanted to get those, and they had names and home addresses. They wanted to engage those people in uncomfortable conversations. The attorney that actually took that case and went to the Supreme Court, he was had death threats. And this is not the first time I've heard of that in this context. So there's some really frightening things going on. Vandalism. And you probably in California may have heard more about that than I have in North Carolina when you actually had Prop 8 on the ballot. So there are challenges and there's, there's a need for not only lawyers, but the body of Christ to come alongside these people. Now, why do we want to even be involved in the legal system in these battles? Well, we're called to be salt and light in a fallen world, for one thing. Sometimes we have to defend against litigation that results from our refusal to sin. And I'm working on a new book proposal that's going to be about that very thing. What happens when the state commands what God forbids? And at what point do you obey God rather than man? And sometimes other believers are faced with that kind of litigation, and they need support. They need a lot of prayer. Um, They may need financial help, or they may need a babysitter when they've got to go to a deposition. I mean, there are all kinds of ways that we might need to minister to people who are faced with that kind of situation. And sometimes we need to address sin in a fallen world, like the abortion issue. And right now, there are a lot of crisis pregnancy centers that have sprung up to address that. They do a wonderful work in just helping young pregnant women in crisis who come to them with practical help. But there are challenges to that. I just submitted a brief in January in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in New York. Because New York City... Have some disclosure laws aimed at these crisis pregnancy centers very very burdensome laws that make it impossible for the, them to even print a business card because they can't fit the disclosures on those business cards and if they try to advertise in a newspaper or the tv the disclosures are so burdensome that it cuts them out of the market it could put a lot of them out of business And the lower court made a good decision and said this is unconstitutional, but the city appealed to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. So we'll see what happens with that. There's another case coming along out of Austin, Texas, that will go to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that is almost identical in, in terms of its issues. So we've got activists who want to shut down even those attempts to help women who want to keep their babies, don't want to have abortions. So we live in a world that's a fallen world. We have sin that we need to address, and there's a lot, lot of work to do. Another reason is to protect our children. Um, in California right now, there's a, there is a law that mandates in the public schools positive teaching about homosexuality. I haven't read all the details of that, but that's a frightening kind of trend. What kind of a country do we want our children to live in? And right you know, up till now, marriage has been one man, one woman. That's generally accepted, even, even among unbelievers. So that's important. And also, to, it's important to set legal precedent to help maintain the freedom we've had in America to preach the gospel. A lot of countries don't have that, but in America... We've had a lot of freedom of speech and freedom of religion, so we can preach the gospel. We can have Bible studies. We can have churches, and we can preach the gospel. Um, I read a case recently, and it was, I don't know, San Clemente, somewhere here in in Southern California, where the government came down on a home Bible study. But, happily, they reversed their position, and home Bible studies are going to still be able to meet but there's, there's a lot of challenges like that. What kind of challenges are your counselees possibly going to face? Sometimes legal mandates requiring him to act against conscience. Can you imagine a public school teacher with this law rec- that would require him or her to teach a positive view of homosexuality? I think there's some real constitutional issues with that. I know there are. But that's the kind of mandate. And if someone in your church is a public school teacher faced with that mandate who challenges it, that person may end up having to go to court. Financial penalties, crippling financial penalties. Um, The California Supreme Court, back in the 90s I think it was, ruled against a Christian landlord who refused to rent an apartment to an unmarried boyfriend-girlfriend because she did not want to facilitate their sin of living together. And the California Supreme Court said she just needs to sell her apartment buildings and invest her money in something else. Very frightening. Yes. Litigation. You may be a plaintiff. You may be a defendant. You may be a plaintiff if you're forced to sin against conscience. You may have to file a lawsuit or Or it may be a good thing to do to set precedent to help other people. Or you may have to defend a lawsuit. (coughs) But litigation is like one of the most stressful things that you can possibly go through. And a lot of the things you see in counseling, a lot of the issues, they escalate when people are facing litigation. They'll turn to alcohol or food. Or they'll blame other people. There are all kinds of counseling issues that arise, can arise in the context of litigation. So you need a lot of strong, you need wise counsel, a prayer support. You really need brothers and sisters in Christ to come along, somebody that's facing litigation. Even other kinds of litigation. I mean, you might have somebody that's facing business litigation or something. And has anybody here ever counseled somebody going through any kind of lawsuit? Anybody ever had that? No? Okay, well, well, good. Well, just be prepared. Uh, Verbal persecution, other kinds of persecution, as I mentioned before, physical threats. How can you help? Prayer support. I mean, there's nothing more important or vital than prayer if someone's going through one of these situations. Maybe other kinds of ministry for that counselee and his family. Like I mentioned, if someone is going through a situation with litigation, they may have to take a day off for a deposition. Maybe they need a babysitter for their kids. Um, If they're having financial trouble, somebody can give them a meal. Um, There are different kinds of ministry that might be needed, in addition to the wise counsel that you'll want to give them to help them get through in a godly way. Uh, Another thing is Christian organizations that can provide free legal assistance. And I am, one thing I am happy to be able to say is we have literally an army of Christian lawyers in America that are ready and willing and able to help in these kinds of situations. Uh, one of them, and I've got a list of them in the back of my book, but Alliance Defense Fund is a Christian organization that's based in Phoenix, but they have offices other places, and they have people like me who have been through their litigation academy and have made a commitment, a pro bono commitment, to donate hours to helping religious organizations or helping with this kind of litigation. And I know I write briefs in a lot of these cases. I write what's called friend-of-the-court briefs. I like to call them friendly briefs. But it means that I'm not representing one of the parties, but I'm coming in with an angle with additional information. Like the case with the counseling student, I brought in the training that I have in theology and explained how counseling is not without values. It's not a value-free, neutral kind of thing that you can do. So, there, are, anyway, the Christian organizations are out there that can provide free legal assistance. And you can refer somebody if you know about them and, and know where to send them. There's one in Marietta called Advocates for Faith and Freedom. You can encourage the person to remain faithful and to trust the Lord. And I can be... It's more easily said than done sometimes in this kind of situation. As I talk to people about what's going on in the legal square, I find a lot of people are angry. A lot of people are discouraged. It's like, why, you know, it's, it's just going to get worse. And it may get worse. But... God is still on his throne. So it's important to come alongside people and encourage them to remain faithful and to respond righteously and to know when, at what point do they need to say, I've got to obey God rather than this unrighteous law. <clears throat> at what point does that happen? Like your school teacher who's told she has to teach a positive view of homosexuality. That just happens to be on my mind because of this law but there could be other things this obamacare this federal health care law that was upheld there's another whole set of lawsuits out there because employers have to provide health insurance if they have a certain number of employees and the minimum coverage includes things that some people would object to on the basis of conscience like contraception i know the catholics object to that but drugs that induce abortions and so there are a whole bunch of lawsuits that have already been filed and will go up the ladder in the federal court system on that. And I know there's at least one that's been filed on behalf of an individual Christian in business who just doesn't want to pay for that kind of thing for his employees or their children. Uh, this law could allow the children say of your employees to go out and have an abortion without parental knowledge even so you don't want to finance that as a christian so that's that's something you can do is help people think through at what point do i need to obey god rather than man because usually we do submit to the governing authorities according to scripture how do we love our enemies in this situation and that's always important too great example there i don't know if you've maybe heard of a lady named abby johnson she works for the americans united for life now she's a strong pro-life advocate and she has quite a story i read her book it's called unplanned she grew up as a christian but not a real strong christian and she was taken in by planned parenthood's propaganda and went to work for them, thought she was going to make abortions safe and rare. Well, she found out differently, but she got tied up in that system and became the director of a large clinic in Texas and was making good money. And there were some Christians that would hang around outside to try to talk to the women coming in. That's a common thing that happens in abortion clinics that Christians stand outside try to talk to the women and persuade them to keep their babies. Well, those Christians that were outside her clinic, they were very gracious. I mean, and when they would greet her in the morning, hello, they they just showed the love of Christ and yet they didn't compromise their position. Well, Abby Johnson at one point, she was forced to assist with an abortion and suddenly you know, it's like the scales fell off her eyes and she realized, oh, this is wrong. This is wrong. I can't be part of this anymore. She knew where to go. These pro-life advocates, they had an office down the street and she ran down there and they welcomed her with open arms. In fact, just recently she has started a new ministry to try to help some of these people that are in the position she was in. They're working for an abortion-related service and they want to get out. So she's got a ministry to help them because maybe they don't have another job to go to but they've got a family to feed. So there's another situation. You might find somebody like that stumble into your church. And uh, that's loving your enemies but also we need to be ready to give an answer to those who want to know what's about the hope that's in us. And these, these Christians were that were outside Abby Johnson's abortion clinic. And to help them guard against things like anger and anxiety and bitterness and despair. And all of these things that we people sometimes turn to instead of God. We're just hearing about that this morning. Well, that all sounds good in real life. Now for some examples, real life examples. Um, There's one here in your outline and it's a real example i have changed the name of the person but she's a good friend of mine that i've known for many years and she went to work part-time to assist her pastor at her church this is a lutheran church but it could happen anywhere or it could happen in a lot of places and this job was supposed to be about 20 hours a week to give her time to be with her husband and her elderly parents who lived in the area and her grandkids But what happened, some homosexual activists infiltrated the church. And I don't know what all happened, but the church split. It was just a real, real mess. And the pastor resisted this and wanted to stand for biblical truth. And Linda, I've called her Linda here, that's not her name. Her 20-hour-a-week job turned into about 60 hours a week. It was no longer part-time. And she had some frightening things happen. Her office was ransacked. And she had one of these activists, who she recognized later, came up behind her on this um, road. It's a, I, I've been on that road, and you go for quite a while with nothing, but followed her, tailgated her, and she was in fear of her life, and there was nowhere to get off. So it was, the emotional toll on her was just, just huge and she turned to food for comfort gained a huge amount of weight last time i saw her i visited her on the way back from nank last year and she was getting getting her weight back on track and some other things too but she has said she started to blame her husband even though her husband had actually been very supportive and and had been there for her and she realized later that hey it really wasn't his fault he was trying to be there for her So there's some issues there with, you know, asking forgiveness and reconciliation. And she had her elderly father was very lonely. Her mother had passed away from Alzheimer's. Her dad was 90-something and very lonely. And now she's, and he passed away. And so she had some guilt. You know, I didn't spend enough time with my dad when he was lonely, and now now he's gone. So there are a lot of counseling issues that can come up when you're faced with this kind of situation. This friend was not even in litigation. In litigation, it gets exponentially worse. You've got reams of paper. You've got costs. You've got depositions. I mean, it's 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 bad. Litigation is not my favorite thing to do. I like to write these friendly briefs and send them to courts. But I have, at times, had a little bit of experience with litigation, and it really is is very debilitating so anyway a couple of different kinds of situations you might face a situation where the government requires you to sin and you're sued because you refuse to sin or you're faced with some kind of penalty there might be another situation where you exercise your first amendment rights lawfully to speech or free exercise of religion and you face repercussions. And you've got to know when do you lay down your rights and when do you really need to assert them. You can't stop, a preacher can't stop preaching the gospel in, in, in order to um, escape legal penalties. Right now, there's still freedom for that. But in some countries, other parts of the world, you don't have that. And things are getting worse here. So anyway got some examples and these are not on the outline I'm just going to talk about them here but a student in school what if a student takes an acting class and is asked to speak profanity or blasphemy there actually was a court case that I read about that does that student have a first amendment right to not do that you know and when you're playing a role you're not it's not you actually being forced to to speak but something that bad as a Christian, you might not want to do that. And that could be a high school student or a college student, young people. You might have an assignment or a student might to write a paper supporting a particular viewpoint. Now, in law school, you know, we have to learn how to, how to write things from both angles. So you might have an assignment to, for example, write this opinion the way Justice Scalia would write it. He's a conservative, or write it, and then write it the way Justice Ginsburg would write it, as a liberal. So that could be an exercise that you could do, and you know that example might be okay. You've got to learn how how to how the other side thinks. Um, another situation, and there was a real case about that, is a professor who ridicules and humiliates Christian students. There was a student it was in Southern California. A professor said. Oh, you can't see truth when you put your Jesus glasses on, but just outright ridicule. Well, that student took that to court, and there was a partial victory in that case. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court turned down review of the case, but I wish they had taken it. But that's just as unconstitutional as the government forcing a religion on somebody to show that kind of hostility. And that could take, takes a lot of courage for a high school student or a junior high student to be in that position and to stand up for the cause of Christ. Another kind of situation that comes up is a student, even maybe even in elementary school um, is in a music class and wants to sing a song a praise God the praising God or to write a school assignment and Wants to write it from a religious perspective. Or say a student is valedictorian or has some other reason to give a speech and wants to mention God. There are just so many challenges. All of those those situations, those are all private speech that's protected by the First Amendment. It's not government speech. But there are a lot of challenges that come up there in these schools. There was one a student at recess or at lunch on his own time just quietly wants to read the bible or pray maybe he wants to pray and over his lunch with another student um should be constitutional but some sometimes the schools will come down on a student for doing that now it would be a little different if say it was the middle of class and you know you're supposed to be watching the board and The teacher's putting math formulas up there, and you're sitting there not paying attention. Okay, you need to to pay attention and be respectful. So that takes some discernment. Um, There's a day of silence that the homosexuals promote in the public schools every year where the students are all supposed to be quiet and show their support for the gay and lesbian community. Well, the Christians have started something. They originally called it the day of truth. Now they call it the day of dialogue. But there have been Christian students expelled for wearing T-shirts that um, state the biblical view of homosexuality. So that's another challenge. Um, A Christian group that's on a public school campus might be denied the official recognition that's given to any other group because they refuse to admit atheists or other unbelievers to leadership positions. Christian Legal Society had a case like that that went to the Supreme Court because they wanted their leaders and their voting members who elected the leaders to be Christians. Imagine that. And and also to be living in accordance with biblical principles. So not living an unrepentant homosexual or heterosexual s- sinful, uh, not, not living an openly sinful lifestyle. Well... They lost in the Supreme Court, just barely. I I couldn't believe that they did that, that that happened. Or maybe I can. But that particular school, and unfortunately they had all stipulated that this law school had what they called an all-comers policy, meaning that every student group on campus had to accept any student as a voting member or in a leadership position. Doesn't make sense. I mean, can you imagine the student Democrats having to admit a Republican leadership. I mean, you have no identity as a group with that kind of requirement. And what was really wild in that case in the Supreme Court, there was actually a homosexual student group that wrote a brief supporting the Christian Legal Society because they they got the point that any group to maintain its identity should be able to require that their leaders agree with their mission statement. I mean, that should be a no-brainer here's another one at school. Suppose that couple comes to see you and they have a five-year-old who comes home with a book showing two men kissing each other or two women. I mean, and they actually have books like that in the public schools. Some parents in the Northeast filed a lawsuit and lost. So that's frightening. Um, I guess the answer to some of that is to be involved in your community and help elect who's on the school board, and that's one one solution. Yeah. Homeschooling is another one. A lot of Christians homeschool. But anyway, suppose that um, instead of a married couple who maybe could arrange homeschooling or private schooling, suppose you got a single mom coming in there with that situation. She's got three toddlers. Maybe she's a new Christian. She's Working at McDonald's, flipping hamburgers, or something like that, just to try to make ends meet. And this situation comes on her. She can't afford a private school. She can't afford to stay home and homeschool when she's got to be out working. So there, you know, maybe there's a, there are ways that the church would be able to help. But I'm just just throwing out hypotheticals here because you may, you may run into some of these. Um, small business owners is another thing. What if your counselee owns a printing shop and is asked to print materials that advance the homosexual agenda or the abortion agenda? There was actually a real case where a bakery was asked to provide cupcakes for a same-sex commitment ceremony, or maybe it was a gay pride event, something like that, and it had, they had a logo on it. The, the bakery owner said, no, I can't do that. There's another real case in New Mexico. A Christian photographer was asked to take photos for a same-sex commitment ceremony. This is New Mexico. They don't have legalized same-sex marriage there even. But this photographer was hauled in front of a human rights commission and fined several thousand dollars just for acting in accordance with her religious biblical views. Somebody, you might find this actually happening. It does actually happen. Um, again, there's the, the example with the apartment building I mentioned earlier. But you might own a hotel or a small motel or a bed and breakfast, and you might have an unmarried boyfriend, girlfriend, or a same-sex couple want to use your services. California has a very broad, sweeping anti-discrimination act. It's called the Unruh Act. And the apartment owner was sued under that for marital discrimination. So this is very, very frightening. And, and the, the religious freedom defense didn't work. And there was another case, another one that that is the first friend of the court brief that I wrote, actually. Two Christian medical doctors not far from here, down in North San Diego County, they were sued by a homosexual woman for refusing to do an, a fertilization procedure to enable her to get pregnant with a child that she intended to raise with another woman. The lawsuit went on for several years even after she had gone somewhere else and had the baby. So there's an agenda. There's a, an attempt to set press bad precedent. The California Supreme Court ruled against those doctors and their free exercise of religion defense. So, uh, this is, I couldn't make this stuff up. Now, on the other hand, suppose you own a restaurant and a couple of men or women come in and just want to sit down and have a meal. A little different. You're not directly advancing their agenda. So, You've got to think through each situation. I mean, that even might even be an opportunity to witness. You don't know. And as an attorney, yes, I'm subject to professional rules. In California, there are non-discrimination rules. I am admitted to the bar here, but I live in North Carolina, so I don't run into that so much as I would here. But suppose that an attorney is asked to draft a will for a same-sex couple and they want to leave things to one another. Um, what if a homosexual person came in and wanted to form a corporation to sell used cars or something else that had nothing to do with the agenda? Okay, I could do that. I could be gracious and, you know, treat the person respectfully. I'm not directly advancing their agenda there. But, I mean, it can get trickier. Suppose they wanted to form a nonprofit corporation to promote increased rights for same-sex couples or homosexuals. That I couldn't do in good conscience. Or if one came and asked me to write a brief supporting that agenda, couldn't do it in good conscience. I'd have to refuse. If that were California, I could have problems. Um, There was recently a Christian judge I read about. This was so refreshing. I just have to mention it. A judge was asked to grant consent for a minor's abortion bypassing notice to her parents. And this judge said, no law could give him the right to do wrong. So I don't know what how that will end up, but that was encouraging to hear. So the different professions have different issues that they have to look at. A Christian accountant, I, years, I used to be an accountant. I'm glad I'm not anymore. But you know, what if a Christian accountant were asked to keep books for an organization that uh, promoted homosexuality? I never was, but you know and and wasn't donating the time, are you just helping them comply with the law or are you advancing their agenda? It it can get real real fuzzy and that's where you've got to think through these issues and, and your own conscience. You don't want to someone to sin against conscience. conscience is a big deal. I hope to write a another a book on that. Healthcare. Pharmacists have been raked over the coals. It, for refusing to dispense abortion-producing drugs, that's another whole issue that's there. Crisis pregnancy centers, I've mentioned those, and some big businesses these days—Target, I've read about, Starbucks, and you know, Oreo cookies—are actively advancing the homosexual agenda. J.C. Pennies. do you stop shopping there? Is it a sin to shop there? Some people say, you know, I'm just not going to shop there anymore. But on the other hand, there are a lot of employees. These are huge corporations. And there are a lot of employees that may not agree. Maybe even Christian employees trying to feed their families. And I'm just, you know, throwing out some things to consider here. So there's a lot. You know, I think we are out of time. And I am not entirely out of things to say except that. I have one thing I'm going to read to you. Because it's so important as we encounter these things to be gracious And respect people, but not compromise the gospel. Here is a response from a Christian employee who worked for a company that required him to sign a statement um, that he would recognize, respect, and value the differences among all of those. Here's his response. I can't comply with the ambiguous statement under diversity. As an employee, I am fully cognizant of the fact that there is diversity among its members. Since being hired, I have indiscriminately conducted myself in a professional manner with all people. However, I believe it's wrong for any individual or organization to attempt to persuade me to fully respect and fully value any differences which are contrary to God's word. In order for me to comply with this diversity statement in the company handbook, I would have to deny my faith. This I will not do. It is this reason that prohibits me from signing the Certificate of Acknowledgement. As an employee, I give you my word I will continue to conduct myself in the same professional manner. But I can't allow any group or individual to choose for me what I must respect or place value on. Well, there are other challenges like this, but that was a really good example of someone who refused to compromise or deny his faith, but was very gracious about it. So I will end with that. Copyright 2012, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.